Hello and welcome to Radical, Women and the Irish Revolution. I'm your host, Julie Morrissey, Poet-in-Residence at the National Library of Ireland. In this podcast series, I will be joined by a variety of guests to talk about my experience as I think and write about some of the most important women in Irish history. This podcast invites listeners to join my learning and creative processes at the National Library and gives a chance to follow my project as it unfolds. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Susan Cahill on this inaugural episode of Radical Women and the Irish Revolution. Susan is a wonderfully talented writer, editor, academic, thinker, and activist. I first met Susan when we were campaigning to repeal the Eighth Amendment, and she's well known for her activism during that period. Susan was the first woman to tell her abortion story on the stage of the Abbey Theatre, which was subsequently published in the Irish Times. She is a former professor of Irish studies, and she is currently working on her debut children's novel, The Dream Door. Her work is published in Winter Papers and The Puritan. Susan is represented by Kate Shaw Agency. She's from Clonakilty, County Cork, and she is funded by the Arts Council. We're so lucky to have her. Welcome to the podcast, Susan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, we're really pleased to have you. Um, So the reason that Susan is my first guest today is because way back when I was researching for this role of poet and resident at the National Library, I asked Susan who her favorite writer from the revolutionary period is. And she said Dorothy McArdle. Now, to my shame, at that point, I didn't actually know that much about McArdle, but I followed Susan's recommendation and I checked out McArdle's work and read a lot about her life. And I was really drawn to her as a person, um, not only because McArdle is a writer, But she was born in Dundalk, County Louth in 1889, where my family are from. She attended Alexander College, which is just down the road from where I grew up in Dublin. And she was also a student at UCD. And so were Susan and I, not at the same time. (laughs) But McArdle was a, a teacher, a novelist, a playwright, a journalist, a feminist who opposed the exclusion of women from some areas of the workforce as well as opposing the domestic role for women in the 1937 constitution. She founded the Irish Women's Writers Club. I could go on, there's so many extraordinary things about her life. But Susan, I'm curious about your path to McArdle and how you first started reading and teaching her work. Oh, I love McArdle so much. And she's one of those women who, the more I find out about her, the more I love her. Um, I think I first came across her in the Field Day Anthology of Women's Writing and Traditions. Um, And that's where the story we're going to talk about today is anthologized. Um, The story is called The Portrait of Roisin Du. And I think Emma Radley of the School of English Drama and Film in UCD, I think she might have introduced me to her. Um, I shared an office with Emma in UCD when she was working with Geraldine Meany on the diaries of Rosamund Jacob, who was another revolutionary woman. And they actually, Rosamund Jacob and McArdle shared a flat. They actually became friends because they shared the same cell in, I think it was in Mountjoy. Um, I just remember being completely blown away by the story, the portrait of Roisin Du. Um, to me, when I read it, it seemed eerily prescient. And it was just so astute about the role of women in Irish literature and art, especially during the revival. And if I recall correctly, when I'd been, when I encountered the story first, I'd been immersing myself in all that 
amazing Irish feminist criticism by people like Jordi Meany, by Moina Sullivan, and of course, Nuala Nigonal and Ivan Boland, Boland. And they all spoke about the relegation of women to muse status in Irish writing. And Boland summarizes this really nicely when she says, um, this is a quote from Boland, the women in their poems, she's talking about nationalist poetry. So the women in their poems were often passive, decorative, raised to emblematic status. This was especially true where the woman and the idea of the nation were mixed, where the nation became a woman and the woman took on a national posture. So Boland, Meany, Sullivan, they were all highlighted the erasure of women as flesh and blood human beings in the work of male writers um, who turned women into like phantasms of the nation instead. And Yeats is one of the, the prime culprits here. And so that's literally what happens in McArdle's story. So her story for me is like a really elegant distillation of that later criticism. And at the time when I read it, that blew my mind that a feminist critique of the revival was happening within the revival itself. Although now knowing more about the feminist movements at the time, that shouldn't have been surprising. But it was because I'd never been exposed to the richness and modernity of revival era feminism or women's writing in, in my undergrad. Um, so when I was asked to teach a course in the Irish Literary Revival, in my previous life in Concordia University in Montreal, I had to add McArdle and I had to set her this story against plays like Kathleen de Houlihan and Yeats's poems about women in politics, uh, like A Political Prisoner, Easter 1916. And I just really wanted to show the students that conversation that was happening at the time between feminist writers and the more traditional representations of women. I so wish I was in that class. It sounds so amazing. <laughs> and I'm glad that you mentioned the portrait of Roisin Duke because we're going to talk about that in more depth um, a little bit later on. But I am curious about how students um, responded to McArdle's work. Um, I know the Trump Press recently reissued her novels The Uninvited and The Unforeseen, and the former was actually adapted into a film, which Geraldine Meany, Mary McDowd and Bernadette Whelan have written about. Um, the Louth-based artist Constance Short has also curated the Dorothy McArdle Weekend in Dundalk in, in 2016, and I understand she gives public talks about McArdle. But in spite of that, my preliminary research didn't reveal as much about McArdle as you might imagine. Thankfully, there's plenty about her at the National Library Archives, and things like the Waking the Feminist Movement have also done a lot to draw attention to McArdle. And there's lots of great um, articles and resources like that, including um, one article written by Lisa Cohen for writing.ie. Um, so I'm wondering, Susan, about that experience of teaching her work. The course sounds so great, but what kind of familiarity did you experience with McArdle's work from students and maybe more generally? Uh, well, first of all, I'm really glad that she's starting to get more recognition. She absolutely deserves it. Um, when, I was, when I was teaching her in Canada to Canadian students, the familiar there was no familiarity with her work um and I, in fact like in the Irish Literary Revival the students often didn't have any familiarity with the writers so they were they were kind of like blank slates um, but they were really interested in the erasure of women writers and thinkers from the revival period uh, I remember showing the students that sequence of photos that the National Museum of Ireland released um, and in those sequence of photos you can see the the elimination of Nurse O'Farrell from the moment of surrender in 1916 so that's like there's three photos and in the last photo 
you can only see Pierce, like in the first photo, they're standing beside each other. Um, and like McArdle's story, that dramatizes for me really clearly the fate of the political woman in Ireland in this period. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up that photograph. Um, I spent a lot of this week very closely reading Elizabeth O'Farrell's account of the surrender. And her role was so hugely significant, not just in that moment that you're referring to in the photograph of Porrick Pierce's surrender on Moore Street, but in surrenders at many other locations and her role in the days and hours that followed that surrender with Pierce. And I was really struck by her bravery she was taken to Kilmainham jail after the surrenders, even though she was promised by a British general, general that she wouldn't be imprisoned. You know, so she had, you know, this these moments after she had um, kind of participated in this really significant way where her future all of a sudden was hanging in the balance. And I just can't imagine how frightening that would be for her. But the whole um, account is really fascinating. Um, and I'd really encourage people to, to read it in full. Going back to McCardle, um, I'd love to know how you connect with her as, I, you know, you're a radical woman yourself. You have plenty in common with McCardle, including your love of ghosts and the extra sensory. So how does this all kind of connect to your work? Uh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's the bravery, first of all, of, of women like her, like McCardle and like what, what you're just saying about um, O'Farrell. The bravery of those revolutionary women is so inspiring to me. Um, and that's that's the kind of first aspect of McCardle's work that I'm drawn to. And she was she was she taught in Alexandra College and she was dismissed from her post in 1922 because of her political activities. And then she was actually arrested a few days later. And so. As a, teach, as a teacher, as a teaching in universities, I always thought about that. Um, I always thought about that, especially in relation to the, the, the relationship between my teaching and my activism. And, like, it's not the same thing in any way. But when I made my decision to tell my abortion story on the Abbey stage, which felt terrifying and a bit dangerous, I thought about McArdle's bravery and I thought about her passion for education. Um, and her passion for education meant that she started classes in revolutionary history when she was imprisoned. Um, and she, as well as teaching revolutionary history while imprisoned, she also wrote the story that we're talking about today, along with several others. And then they were all, uh, after she was uh, released, they were all published as Earthbound. So all of that was really inspirational for me to stand up and tell my story. And then, of course, the other aspect of McArdle that I love is, as you say, her obsession with the extrasensory. And she was one of those people who believed that the supernatural could scientific, the supernatural could be scientifically studied. Um, she was a member of the Society for Psychic Research. Um, Patrick Maum, in his, and he's got a great bi um, biographer biography of her for the Dictionary of Irish Biography, and she mentions that she claimed to be followed by an invisible familiar, which made her friends worry about her a little bit. Um, and her friendship with Rosamund Jacob, which I mentioned earlier, that friendship broke down because of a poltergeist, according to McArdle. Jacob felt it was because McArdle was being a prude, and that's Jacob's word. She said that McArdle was a prude because McArdle disapproved of Jacob's affair with Frank Ryan. But I, I'm completely fascinated by this. The novelist part of my brain 
loves the idea of a poltergeist upsetting a friendship. Kind of want I I I want to write that short story about the poltergeist interrupting their friendship. Um, whereas the academic part of my brain is interested in that use of ghosts and the supernatural to get at things that might not be comfortable to think about that trouble you and haunt you. Um, and actually, interestingly, McArdle seems to use the supernatural in her writing to get at the sacrifices demanded of motherhood in the Irish state. She wasn't a mother, but she could she could really clearly see the restrictions to womanhood enshrined in the Constitution. Um, and she actually fell out with de Valera about that. And she was very close to de Valera, um, really until the Constitution, um, and was not happy about the relegation of women to the home within that document. Yeah, absolutely. And you know how much I love thinking about the Constitution. <laughs> um, my project, Certain Individual Women, reconstructs parts of the Bunaract with a particular focus on gender inequality and those kinds of issues that you're talking about, Susan, and that were of concern to McArdle and many of the revolutionary women in this period. And I like that you're talking about those kind of two sides of your brain working in tandem because I, I studied law and I'm a poet. And so I, I guess I have that kind of similar creative and academic sides and ways of thinking. Yeah, I think uh, I think you and McArdle would have had loads to talk about. Um, I mean, she, because of her criticism of the Constitution, the National Council of Women in Ireland appointed her vice chairman of a committee to look at the legislation affecting women. Um, I think you and her could have had some very fruitful chats about the Constitution. And I think she'd have been a big fan of certain individual women. Um, I, on the other hand, would have had chats with her about her invisible familiar. Like, how do you get one? <laughs> I know. I mean, when we were first talking a bit about this, I wasn't quite sure what an invisible familiar is. And I thought maybe it's kind of a ghost, but that's not quite it, is it, no, Susan? No, no. Uh, it's usually more an animal companion. So it's like a demon in animal form, uh, especially if, like if you're a witch, witches and their cats, the cat is a, a demon companion in feline form. Uh, but actually, McArdle's familiar was actually a little girl, which is a bit creepy. Um, but McArdle as a witch with her little ghostly friend, that's something that really appeals to me, um, something I aspire to. I don't, I don't think I want a, a little girl familiar, though. No, that maybe stick with the animal familiar might be my and I can totally imagine that actually. I really can. <laughs> maybe that's in your future. Um, maybe this is a good point to talk in a little bit more depth about McCardle's story, the portrait of Roisin Du. It's very powerful and eerie. Um, so maybe you can give us just a little bit of background on the story and tell us um what it means to you. Well, I could give you a whole lecture on it, but I, I'll spare you. <laughs> um well. So McArdle wrote this, as I said, when she was imprisoned for her anti-treaty activities in 1922. Um, that's where she met Rosamund Jacob. Uh, she wrote a number of those stories and they were published then in 1924 as Earthbound and Other Supernatural Tales. And those stories are all arranged as if they're told around the fire by a group of Irish immigrants in America. And all of those people are activists and artists. And Maeve, one of the immigrants, tells a story about an artist she knew, Hugo Blake. And in the story, Hugo Blake had painted this remarkable painting of a woman. And that's the portrait of the title. Um, in the story, Blake is very much a Yeatsian figure. So maybe even quote some Yeats poems in the story in case we didn't fully get it. And the name is even a nod to Yeats's interest in William Blake, 
Hugo Blake in the story is an artist who captures the soul of whatever he paints. And that seems to be metaphorical until he decides to paint Roisin Du, which is a name, I'm sure many of the listeners will know this already, but it's a name given to a nationalist personification of Ireland. And he goes in search of a woman to live up to that name so that he can paint her. And he finds one. He finds the mysterious Nula, who only speaks Irish, and she's the daughter of the king of the Blasket Islands. So in the story, Maeve dramatizes the process by which Blake sucks the life out of Nula while he paints her, eventually killing her. Now, I find loads of things interesting in this story. So like I said earlier, this is an exact representation of the process by which real women get turned into empty emblems in Irish writing. But in the story, I think McCardle complicates it a little bit because in the story, the process also kills the artist. Blake gets haunted by Nula and he ends up drowning in the lock where he found her. So there's a lingering suspicion in the story that she's a bit more supernatural than she appears. And lakes in Irish folklore, they're always entries to the other world. And Maeve's position in the story is really interesting too. And it's like, it's a, it's a position that I can't completely work out because she facilitates the artistic murder. So even when she's worried about Nula's well-being, and she says that at several points in the story that she's worried about her, but she doesn't intervene because for her, the artwork has to come first. And then Maeve ends up the only survivor and she creates her artwork, which is the story she's telling, out of the deaths of the male artists and the muse slash Ireland. So there's something really tricky and fascinating there about the role of the female artists against that tradition of turning the real woman into an emblem that just niggles at my brain. Yeah, I found the exact same thing. I found the... Maeve's role in the story very intriguing and perplexing and I couldn't quite figure out what I what to think about it at the end and I'm still thinking about it I probably will be thinking about it for a really long time and that was a really excellent uh, account of the story so thanks for that Susan I mean one thing I found I find really uplifting in my research at the National Library is the kind of camaraderie and friendships between many of the revolutionary women for example, there is a postcard from Dorothy McCardle to Lily O'Brennan wishing her happy Christmas. There's correspondence between McCardle and Anya Kant and between Anya Kant and Lily O'Brennan. In another letter, McCardle expresses really deep and heartfelt concern for the welfare of Annie Moore, who was imprisoned after the rising and whose brother and fiance were executed. So there seems to be a real sense of kinship and advocacy between these women. And I was wondering how your friendships with women have helped you on your path to becoming a writer and maybe in your activist work too. Oh, yeah. My, well, my female friendships have been everything, really. Um, and they've sustained me throughout all of my work, like academic, activist, creative. Uh, I did my PhD along two amazing women, Emma Radley, who I've already mentioned, and Claire Bracken, who's now a professor in Union College, New York. And I don't think I wrote any piece of academic writing that either both, I, that either one or both Claire or Emma read and commented on. And so there was this amazing collaborative and conversational aspect to my academic work. And I don't think people talk about that enough. Um, and actually, when myself and Claire co-wrote the introduction to the edited collection that we did on Enright, that writing that introduction was genuinely one of the most pleasant writing experiences I've ever had 
apart from the creative. Um, so Claire would start a sentence, I would finish it and vice versa. And that writing just flows. And that's not something I experienced with academic writing in general. My advice is write with your friends. Um, in terms of activism, then, my friend and colleague in Concordia, Emer O'Toole, she was instrumental. So she'd been invited to the Theatre of Change conference in the Abbey. And when she heard that I wanted to share my abortion story, she so generously offered to share her space on the stage with me. So without her, I, that wouldn't have happened. And, and then I may not have met you, Julie, because we met through Julie's amazing project, the Exile Project. And then Julie has been my creative mentor, really. Um, she's been guiding me through my shift from academia to the creative life. So then any questions I've had recently about how to manage a creative life, I've plagued Julie with, and she's been absolutely wonderful. Yeah, maybe I'm your invisible familiar. Oh, maybe you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's that that's really nice, Susan. Um, and I agree, you know, uh, doing the work with Exile Project um, was such a privilege for all of us. So thanks for your participation and, and for all that you did. Um, I agree that it's really important to have people around to bolster you, especially because writing can be such a solitary practice. Uh, you know, you're going to your desk on your own every day and that can be um, wonderful, and it, but it can also be very challenging. And there's another letter from Dorothy McArdle to Gollants Limited. It's a British publisher in which McArdle recommends that they consider publishing Maud Gon's memoirs. And I know, Susan, you told me that um, McArdle and Gon actually live together on Stephen's Green. So McArdle writes, I'm quoting here, Gone has succeeded in putting her daring, humorous mind on paper. And she remarks that Gone is the most picturesque personality of our revolution. And the publisher's response is really enthusiastic. And that's collected in the, in the archive. But I also wanted to talk about some of the less kind correspondence with editors um, or readers of McArdle's and O'Brennan's work. Um, I think we can both relate to that experience of getting rejection letters or being harshly edited. So I wanted to share some of this material with you because I, I think you'll have a similar reaction to mine. For example, there is a transcript of suggestions and corrections on McArdle's history book, The Irish Republic, from William O'Brien, who's another prominent figure of that period who was associated particularly with land reform. And I was reading through O'Brien's edits, thinking they were quite harsh. I mean, some of them are simply related to accuracy of historical events, um, but his manner is quite funny. For example, some comments simply say, I don't think so, or no, it did not, or wrong, or never heard of this. And two of my favourite comments, said, one is in relation to McArdle's discussion of the proclamation on the steps of the GPO, to which O'Brien wrote, were there steps, question mark. And another must have related to McArdle's writing that Kevin Barry was the first to die in a scaffold since Emmett, to which O'Brien writes, this is news, exclamation point. So these edits actually made me laugh out loud in the library as I was reading them, probably um, much to the um, disruption of the other readers. But I kind of think of my own experience being edited and I actually find it quite hard even though I've had fantastic editors but I just um, have a little bit of trepidation about it and when I open the document on my computer I feel like kind of hiding under my desk so I just wonder how you feel about being edited and maybe I don't know maybe you're better at it than I am oh those, those edits are something oh, were there steps 
I thought there were. <laughs> I thought there were as well. We'll have to check that. <laughs> um, I actually don't mind being edited too much. Maybe that's the academic training I've had over the last 20 years. Um, but I quite enjoy the collaborative aspect of it. Um, and I quite enjoy having someone engage that closely with my work. Might be the narcissist in me. Um, but I've been really lucky so far with my editors. Uh, my agent, Kate Shaw, she's she's blunt but brilliant. Um, I really appreciate her directness when she's uh, commenting on my draft. So one of her comments in my last draft was, no, 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 this cannot happen here. Uh, which made me laugh out loud. <laughs> and, and she was totally right. Uh, but I don't think I could have coped with O'Brien's, comments like O'Brien's. That would have made me hide under my desk. Uh, I do remember, though, uh, a pretty negative reader's report for an academic book proposal that, um, and, and that reader's report called My Analysis. They're, these are their words. Imprecise, vague, clunky, and awkward. But they did praise my, these are their words again, effervescent, engaged, and lively writing. Uh, so that, I mean, that rejection, that rejection did got me. But it, what it made me think about was the kind of writing that I really wanted to do, which would allow me to be more effervescent, engaged and lively and made me realize that that actually wasn't academic writing. So what if there's anything I can take away from that kind of criticism is that you have to go back. It's really hard you have to go back and find the positive stuff, focus on that and see where it takes you. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, when you get a little bit of distance it's easier to do that like I guess I find when I immediately open the document I can be a little overwhelmed but then I go back and I realize that actually the edits are usually completely on point and make the writing better but it's just that initial kind of shock of it sometimes I think um, well, it's also because we see the negative stuff first and remember the negative stuff only like it's it's, it's hard to the, the, the positive stuff just kind of washes washes off your brain Totally. Yeah. And I guess that res that depends on the style of the editor, too, because some some editing is kind of focused on critique and, and isn't maybe balanced with positivity and maybe more of that could work. Like, for example, there's an incredibly harsh and I think rude response from the Department of Education to Lily O'Brennan when she submitted her book, The Call to Arms, to be approved for use in national schools. And the letter was dated the 23rd of December 1937. And suffice it to say, Susan, it was not an early Christmas present for O'Brannan. The response says, and I'm quoting here, one has to read almost 80 pages before anyone who really matters appears. A great part of the work chronicles the homely actions of unimportant people and a perusal of several consecutive pages sometimes furnishes nothing worth noting. Now, I suppose it's up for debate who the Department of Education at that time would have considered important or unimportant, but the letter really shows no respect to O'Brennan. It even says, and quoting again here, it is no better than many senior pupils could write. It has little educational value. Now, there are letters elsewhere in the archive praising O'Brennan's work, and there are plenty of polite and enthusiastic responses from publishers too. Um, but I think this letter from the Department of Education highlights how difficult it was for women to have their work taken seriously. And of course, like we know these issues persist. I'm wondering what you think about a response like this from the department, especially since O'Brennan 
made so many really significant contributions to Irish life and culture. Um, I find this letter quite shocking. I mean, she was a district judge in the Republican courts. She served in the Marrowbone Lane garrison during the Rising. She was a founding member of the Catholic Writers Guild. So um, do you have any thoughts on how women like O'Brennan came to be so undervalued? Uh, I have one word for you, Julie. That word is patriarchy. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. (laughs) And and that's very succinctly put, Susan. And I don't think I can really argue with that, given the rest of our conversation as well today. Um, But one other thing when I found this letter, because I found it and I read it a few times and I thought it was quite amazing that it ended up in the archive because I don't think I would have kept this letter. I mean, I would have found this letter so upsetting. I think I would have thrown it away. So I just wonder what you would do with a letter like this. Well, I think a ritual burning with the help of an invisible familiar. That's the only response to a letter like that. Yeah, I think, yeah, ritual burning sounds perfect. Yeah, totally agree. So we're really we're near the end of this episode, um, but I think we have to end on a more positive note than that letter. Um, I've had such a nice um, last few weeks in the library. I've been reading a fascinating series in the Irish Press newspaper by McArdle, where she reconstructs the week of the Easter Rising day by day. The articles are really poetic and compelling, and I'd encourage listeners to check out those materials. I hope that this podcast will help people find out more about some of these incredible women and um, prompt listeners to look a little bit more closely at their lives and their work. We'll post information in the show notes about the resources mentioned at the National Library and other source material that have co- has come up in today's discussion. Um, of course, I want to thank Susan for sharing her thoughts and knowledge with us. Um, while we're thinking about the work of Dorothy McArdle, Rosamond Jacobs, Lily O'Brennan, Elizabeth O'Farrell, and all these radical women. I'm really thrilled that we can finish this episode with a reading by Susan from her own work. So I'm going to pass back to Susan to close out the show. Um, And before I read, I just want to thank you, Julie, for inviting me onto the podcast and thank the National Library of Ireland. It's been a very enjoyable conversation. Um, I'm going to read from the opening chapter of my middle grade children's novel, um, The Dream Door, um, which is about dreams and other worlds, emotions and imagination. There was something wrong with the shape of the rain. It wasn't obvious, but it was there just the same. Marina Wilde watched the downpour carefully through the archway of the train station, where she and her two cousins waited for their grandmother, who was now officially late. If Marina had been forced to describe the rain, Marina liked thinking about how to describe things. She would have said that there was an extra space between the raindrops, an intriguing gap that might lead to somewhere else entirely. It made her insides fizz with excitement, like there were tiny jumping beans in her blood. It also gave her a prickle of anxiety, It was always the same when she thought about other worlds, half tempted, half afraid. It was the kind of thing about which her cousins would call her wishy-washy. But to Marina, there was always more than one way of feeling about a situation. Marina glanced at her cousins, wondering whether to point out the rainy strangeness to them, but decided to keep her thoughts to herself. Ada would probably tell her it was a hallucination, the result of not sleeping enough lately, 
And anyway, no one ever listened to Marina. Right now, Ada was calmly scanning the faces of everyone entering and exiting the station. She's so grounded, that one, people always said about Ada. And she was sensible Ada. Ada was also the eldest of the three cousins, though not by much. By some bizarre quirk of fate, the three of them had been born on the same day, October 31st, Halloween. Ada had been born just after midnight, Seri at noon, and Marina at quarter to six in the evening, just as dusk fell. They liked to tease Marina about being the youngest, and she let them because it was easier, and there was nothing she could have done to stop them anyway. Marina decided that Ada wouldn't care about the rain. Ada didn't have much time for strangeness these days. She liked everything to have a reason. She wanted explanations that made sense, whereas Marina was always more interested in the places where sense didn't quite work. Sari was fine with the weird. The odder, the better with Sari. You never really knew what peculiar notion she was going to come out with next. But Marina sensed that Sari wouldn't have any patience for her thoughts on rain. Sari was jigging around, chanting the words, fire, fire, heat, heat, in an attempt to keep warm. Sari stopped abruptly and faced her cousins. Do you think she's forgotten us? I do. I think we've been abandoned here forever. And it's our birthday next week too, so the ghosties and goblins are probably out already. Seri also tended towards the dramatic. Marina glanced at the clock over the screen announcing departures and arrivals. It was now almost an hour since the train had left and there was no sign of anyone resembling their grandmother. They weren't even that clear on what she looked like. It had been years since they'd seen her. None of their mothers got on with her. Ursula's always late, Ada said, mimicking their mothers, who always spoke of their own mother with annoyance if they mentioned Ursula at all, which was rare. She'll be here soon. I'm sure she just caught up in traffic or something. Ada peered out at the deserted streets. You sound like a grown-up, Seri said, and Ada punched her in the arm. Marina could feel an argument brewing and it made her twitchy. They were all sleep-deprived and cranky. She chewed at the skin beside her fingernails and tried to ignore the heavy, swirling feeling in her stomach. She wasn't sure what they would do if their grandmother didn't turn up. They had nowhere else to go. Marina thought back to that morning when Mrs. Flynn, her neighbour, had hurried them onto the train. You'll be okay now, Mrs. Flynn had said, kind but distracted. Just stay put in the train until it gets to its last stop and you can't go wrong. Your granny will meet you at the other end. And don't worry about your parents. They're in the best place. Them doctors and nurses will take good care of them. Go on now like good girls. But Marina was worried about their parents. It was strange what had happened to them. It wasn't a normal kind of sickness. Nothing that the doctors or nurses could explain. They had just fallen asleep, all of them, and couldn't be woken. It was midterm and the families always got together for the week of the girl's birthday. Marina had gone in to check on her parents when no one had appeared to make breakfast. Everything had seemed normal, her dad snoring away gently in the large bed, her mum mumbling in her sleep. But when Marina had tried to wake them, she couldn't. Her dad had simply rolled over and continued to snore. The same with Ada and Seri's parents. Even with Seri shouting in their ears, no one had budged. And Seri had a very loud voice. That was when they'd gone to get Mrs Flynn next door, who'd called the doctors and sat with Marina and her cousins while they waited, telling them extremely unhelpful stories about people she'd known who'd just died in their sleep. An ambulance arrived, and the paramedics scratched their heads as they looked at the three sets of peacefully sleeping parents. They're perfectly healthy, the paramedics said, just in very deep sleeps. But the ambulance brought them into hospital for tests anyway, 
And that's where they were now, snoring and mumbling away, blissfully unaware that they had left the three girls without a single parent. Rena and her cousins had moved into the same room that night and had been taking it in turns to stay awake, worried the same thing would happen to them. They couldn't explain how one of them staying awake would help, but it made them feel better. It also made them tetchy. Now the three cousins were waiting for their grandmother, who lived in the back of beyond of nowhere, as Marina's mother described it. She never really talked about her mother, and Marina knew that they didn't get on. Belursa was the only relative they had, and Mrs Flynn wasn't prepared to have them staying with her in her tiny flat, especially not during midterm break. There must be someone who can take ye, she'd said, rifling through Marina's parents' desk drawers, until she found a battered notebook with Ursula's name, address and phone number. There you go now. You can stay with your granny. Sure, she'll only be delighted to have you, especially if she hasn't seen you in years. I'd have you myself, only I'm fierce busy with the book club and my golf, and then there's the coffee morning with the girls, and you know yourself. I don't have a minute to be looking after three growing girls, and I don't have the funds either for the amount of food young people eat nowadays. You'll go to stay with your granny, and you'll be grand. A strange woman all the same, your granny, Mrs Flynn had said to Marina later after she had spoken to Ursula over the phone. I don't mind telling you, because I know you won't say anything. Never makes a fuss, never tries to get her own way. That's what they always said about you. Not like those two stubborn ones. Mrs Flynn gestured with her thumb towards the living room, where Ada and Sari were fighting over the TV remote. Marina wasn't sure whether to be pleased or insulted. And you'll be going to West Cork too, Mrs Flynn continued. Sure, that's where I'm from myself, you know. Only I moved to Dublin when I was 18. The countryside was too boring for me and too full of strange and uncertain things. It rains too much down there. When I was growing up as a girl, there was always stories of people who got lost in the rain. Lost? Marina asked. Lost how? Now, I don't be holding with that kind of stuff at all, but I have to say the rain down there was too porous, if you know what I mean. Marina didn't, but Mrs Flynn had already lost interest in the conversation. Marina looked up the word porous, certain it was to do with pouring. Didn't people say it was pouring rain? But porous, it seemed, was more to do with something having tiny holes or openings in it ways to pass through. Marina thought of this conversation now as she shivered in the exposed train station in the rainy city at the edge of Ireland as the day gave way to night. The rain changed direction, blowing sideways in spiteful little jabs. The wind whipped around and through the building as if it was set on wrenching the station from the city and flinging it into the night. Marina's thoughts turned to disasters. Ursula's car picked up and hurled off a cliff. Sari shoved Marina with her elbow. Daydreaming again? It was a family joke that Marina tended to drift into fantasy at any available opportunity. Her science teacher had startled her once when she was leaning her head against the wall, thinking about pirates instead of particles. Marina, what are you doing? Are you listening to pipe music in the walls? It shouted, and Marina had almost jumped out of her skin. She tried her best to stay in the real world, but her imagination was always better. Marina scowled at Seri. Maybe we should ring Ursula. Marina thought of the grubby piece of paper that Mrs Flynn had pressed into her hand with Ursula's number and address written scratchily on it. At the very least, it would distract her cousins from the fight that was definitely brewing between them. I must have dropped my phone somewhere, said Ada, her forehead creasing into a frown as she searched her coat pockets. This was not like Ada. Seri reached for her phone. As soon as she pulled it out from her pocket, it sparked and shut down and smelt faintly of burning. Marina checked her own. It was still on and working, but was glitchy and possessed like it had a virus. Oh, those things never work around here, said a sudden and sonorous voice. Phones and that internet thingamy. 
something to do with the mountains or the sea or the air or the electricity. A tall and imposing woman had appeared beside them as if from nowhere. She was old and not old at the same time. Marina couldn't quite work it out in her head. Ada, Marina and Seri, how lovely to see you again, Ursula said with a broad smile. She brushed down her coat as if getting rid of a layer of dust, although the coat looked immaculate to Marina. Sorry I'm late, she said. I've never completely gotten the hang of clock time. Great, thought Marina. Our grandmother is nuts. Thank you so much for that, Susan. And thanks to our listeners. You can find out more about Susan's work at Twitter, at S Cahill, S-C-A-H-I-L-L. My website is juliemorrissey.com. The references from our discussions today will be available in the episode show notes at nli.ie. This episode of Radical Women and the Irish Revolution is created as part of the Poet in Residence program at the National Library of Ireland. Supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Geltok, Sport and Media under the Decade of Centenaries Programme 2012 to 2023. Sound and production are by the Museum of Literature Ireland. The music is by Feda. Mm-hmm.